let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, uh, which comes to us at exactly the right time, exactly what we need to hear, accomplishing exactly what you've purposed it to accomplish. So we thank you for your faithfulness to speak to us, not to keep to yourself, but to speak to us. This morning I ask, Father, that now we would have eyes to see and ears to hear and receive and live into the word you have for us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, before I get started, I want to remind you of a few things. One, if you weren't here last week, we gave out these books uh, before we began. It's basically the text of 1 Corinthians, and on the other side, for writing notes there, if you did not get one. So let me just clarify. You got one last week, but you forgot it at home this week. You don't get another one. Uh, but if you did not get one last week and you need one, uh, we have ushers at the back who have them ready to go. You can just put your hand up and they'll come by and you, they'll give you one. And that's fantastic. This is our gift to you for the duration of this series. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians, I think, again, for like two years. And so you'll use this and you'll need this. And this will become to you after the series is done, just a real great resource to you to write your notes in and everything. And so I want to remind you of that. I'm going to throw this off stage right there. Uh, that's not mine. Uh, the other thing uh, that I want to recommend to you is some of you are like, Jake, I'm not a theology person. Like I'm more of a fiction, narrative, kind of that's how I engage with, with things. I don't read big, thick theological textbooks. I want to recommend this resource to you. This is called A Week in the Life of Corinth. It's by a guy named Ben Witherington III, which is a very fancy name. Uh, anyways, basically through the historical fiction, uh, you get to learn a lot about uh, life in Corinth. A lot of things that are super applicable, actually, to our sermon today. And so I'd encourage you, if you're looking for like an entry-level resource into this series, just to get you thinking in the Corinthian way, uh, this book is a great, great resource uh, for you. Kind of envelops you into that world uh, through uh, the, the, the mean or the mode of fiction. And so I'm going to throw this again as well. Um, recommend that resource to you. You can't have that copy. That is mine. Well, let's begin this morning, and I want to begin uh, by referencing something that I heard a while ago, and it was this course that was offered in 2018 uh, by Dr. Lori Santos at Yale University uh, called Psychology and the Good Life. And this course, to this day, I think, is the most successful undergraduate course that has ever been offered. 1,200 Yale undergrads took this course. You can think about that. You think you're in big lecture you know, halls at UBC, 1,200 undergrads taking this course. It disrupted the, the time schedule so much that the course could only be offered once. This course called Psychology and the Good Life. And as Dr. Santos reflected on this course and why it was successful or, or why people were interested, she said that one of the big takeaways from this course was this. And it should cause us to sit up in our seats. I think this is very, very interesting. She said, scientists didn't realize this in the same way 10 or so years ago, that our intuitions about what will make us happy, like winning the lottery and getting a good grade, are totally wrong. I think Dr. Santos asks, in a roundabout way, a very, very important question. What if our intuitions about what will make us happy are wrong? Wrong. But let me go one step further. 
What if the very things, the very thoughts that we think would make us happy are not only wrong, but actually work against our happiness? Make us more angry, more dissatisfied, more unhappy. As we enter the world of 1 Corinthians this morning, we find this age-old dynamic at work. That before Dr. Santos discovered this in her Yale undergrad class, actually the Apostle Paul was already talking about this. In the text before us this morning, we discover that the Corinthian church and the Christians there have brought into the church with them these worldly, cultural, intuitive beliefs about what makes them happy what will make them satisfied, what will make them feel important. And the results of them doing this have been and will be disastrous, or more specifically this morning, divisive. So this morning, I want to work through our text, 1 Corinthians 10, 1, 10 to 17, through three headers. Three headers this morning. You can write this down if you'd like. The first is upward mobility. Upward mobility. The second is outward disunity. So we're talking about upward mobility leading to outward disunity in the church. And the third is our solution. We'll look at that in time, which is downward cruciformity. Upward mobility, outward disunity, downward cruciformity. First point, upward mobility. If you have your Bible or your First Corinthians booklet, let me encourage you. Turn to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, and we're going to come back to this verse a few times. Let me read it for us. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. It it might be tempting to think, I just want to say this as an aside right away, it might be tempting to think that Paul having begun last week so nicely, so charitably, is now like, it's hammer time. I realize that, I'm not making a reference there, but I'm I'm dropping the hammer now, right? Like, I'm now going to destroy you, Corinthians. But that first phrase we find in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers. This phrase is not a harsh command. But as one scholar put it, a a firm request of one who loves his family. See, Paul has no vision of, of pastoral ministry or of ministry brother to sister or sister to brother that is not soaked and saturated and permeated with love, with love. So he says, and hear this gently, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, hear this, please. Wherever the Corinthians are mistaken, and they're mistaken, however they've gone astray, and they've gone astray, even the hardest words we have to speak to one another, the most necessary of rebukes, they come in the context of familial urging, not domineering command. And what does Paul urge, appeal for the Corinthians to do? We read, again, verses 10 to 12, that by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, agree, and that there be no divisions among you, that you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And listen to verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, 
or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, and Cephas is Peter, that's his Jewish name, or I follow Christ. Now again, in order to understand like much of, of this letter, in order to understand the nature of the division that we're dealing with here, we have to immerse ourselves in the Corinthian world. Remember, last week Daniel told us that Paul is responding uh, to two sources of information. We read in 1 Corinthians 5 that he's already written at least once to this church, and they've written back to him, and maybe they've exchanged like a series of letters. They've, they've been talking. But we also know, as we read today, that Paul's heard a report from Chloe's people. And frankly, we, we don't know who Chloe is. She could be in Ephesus, where Paul is writing from, or she could be in Corinth. But it's like that Chloe is a successful businesswoman and she has slaves or employees who go around the Roman world trading on her behalf. And they've come to Paul in Ephesus and they've told Paul, Paul, things are not good in Corinth. In fact, this is their message. Paul, there are factions. The word here is literally schisms or schismata. There are schisms occurring and happening in the church. People are quarreling amongst each other. They're dividing on the basis of certain high-profile Christian leaders. Now again, I wish I could tell you more. We don't know a ton about these divisions that they're experiencing. But we can pretty confidently say this. The divisions that the Corinthian church are experiencing are based almost exclusively on pride. On pride and arrogance. Let me explain. One of the most foundational relationship dynamics in the Roman world is the relationship between client and patron. Client and, and patron. So each morning, if you have a patron, uh, the client, who is the have-not in this equation, uh, the poorer person, the person in need, would go to the door of the patron. And the patron is the, is the have these are the wealthy, the influential, the powerful, maybe politicians, successful business people. The have-nots would go to the door of the haves, and they would wait there. And they would line up with all the other clients. And the patron would receive his clients. And it was this asymmetrical, reciprocal relationship. So the powerful person engaging in a reciprocal relationship with someone less powerful. So the client would come, and they would bring to them news, or some sort of gift or something. And, and the patron would, would receive that. Uh, the client would, would vote for the patron in the upcoming elections. Uh, earlier in Roman history, before Paul's day, uh, the clients would actually serve in the patron's private army. And in turn, the client would get something. Well, what would they get? Remember, before we go too far here, that, that Corinth is this newly founded city, Right? It's not like the old wealth of Rome. It's not like that kind of like, you know, like people have been established here for a while. You can't really go up any higher. It's a newly founded city. And as a newly founded city, there was this spirit of upward mobility amongst them. Think of like Silicon Valley in like early 2000s. You could go there and make a fortune. You could go there with the right idea and you could get rich. It was this place you could go and, and make it in this world. This newly founded city of Corinth, where they love their upward mobility. And one of the cards the Corinthians could play in their game of upward mobility, in this wildly competitive environment, was choosing the right patron. So here's what a patron would do. 
A patron might take you to that feast in that temple because all feasts are in temples. That's where everything important happens in these temples in this wildly religious city. Might take you to that feast in that temple and you'd be seen with that patron at that feast. You could do what we call now networking at the temple, right? A patron might invite you to the Isthmian Games. And I said that right and I'm proud of myself right now. The Isthmian Games. Where you could be seen sitting alongside them rubbing shoulders with them, could elevate your status. To make it to the top in Corinth, you needed a flashy, politically savvy, rhetorically gifted, powerful patron. And so the Corinthians thought, so it is in the church. If that's how the world works, then surely the church works the same way. See, as one scholar put it, and as Daniel reminded us last week, the problem that we're going to encounter over and over and over and over again in 1 Corinthians is that the Corinthians were simply trying to be Christians with a minimal amount of social and theological disturbance. And I know Daniel talked about this last week, but I want us to, to sit here. The Christians, rather the Corinthians, were simply trying to be Christians with a minimal amount of social and theological disturbance. Meaning... When these Corinthians became Christians, they brought their value of upward mobility, of ladder climbing with them into the church. Except now, instead of their patrons bearing names like Brutus or Julius or, or Justus, no, now their patrons bear the name of well-known Christian leaders, right? Paul, Apollos, Peter, even Christ himself. Now, again, I want to say it as an aside here, it's important to note that despite each group aligning under certain Christians, it's important to note that the split that we're seeing here in 1 Corinthians 1 is not over theological or social issues. It's not over theological or, or social issues. So, so let me explain. Some of you will want to read 1 Corinthians 1 and look back on church history and, and do a bit of a retrospective. So some of you are familiar with the Reformation in the 16th century. And you're thinking to yourself, well, Luther, why don't you and the Pope just agree? Or Calvin, why don't you and the Pope just agree? Shouldn't unity trump theology? But that is, let me be very clear, not what's happening here. Let me explain to you. Later in this letter, Paul will write to the Corinthian church, who, is, who are having a problem around the Lord's Supper, right? Basically, there's these social divisions forming because they're practicing it in an unworthy way. And Paul will say at the beginning of this argument, something like this. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. In other words, the church by definition has set boundaries of theology, has set boundaries of our social ethic, has set boundaries that we live and move and indeed find freedom in. That's the church by definition. And when people transgress those, there is a necessary separation that occurs, either for time or for good. So Paul's issue here is not theological or social, or how they're living out their faith. It's purely on the basis of pride. And to help us bring this into the 21st century for us, let me just illustrate it for us. Let me just... 
maybe bring it into a conversation that we can understand. So in the church today, we say things like this. I want to be known as spiritual. I want to be a spiritual one. And so Henry Nouwen and his contemplative writings are all I and anyone else should read. And in fact, I'm going to separate from you guys because I'm spiritual. I'm more contemplative. You guys are like busy and reformed or whatever's going on over here, but I'm spiritual. Still another voice pipes up. I want to be known as sophisticated. Again, minimal amount of of disturbance in my life in terms of coming to Christ. And so I want to still be able to be in the city, speak winsomely in the city. I want to be a sophisticated Christian. Not like, you you know, Christians in the South or, you know, in Abbotsford, but like a sophisticated like a city Christian, I'm, I'm sophisticated, right? And so I read Tim Keller. And if you're not reading Tim Keller, you should be. And I'm going to distinguish myself over here. So we have the spiritual, and they're on their own little group. We have the sophisticated, and again, they're their own little group. But still another voice comes into the conversation. That's good for you two. Spiritual, sophisticated ones. But I'm serious about my faith. I don't know if you know this about me. I'm serious about my faith, right? And so I read John MacArthur, and John MacArthur preaches verse by verse through the Bible, and if you're really serious, you would do that. So we have already the spiritual, the sophisticated, and the serious, right? And we've all kind of divided ourselves. We're the best, everybody else, kind of somewhere down here. Still, one last smug voice cries out from the back. It's fine that you want to be spiritual. It's fine that you want to be sophisticated. It's fine that you want to be serious. But I want to climb even higher. It's the voice of the smug. I only read the Bible. I only follow Jesus. Right? I'm actually above the rest of you. You should really get to my level. Now, while these voices and opinions might seem different and varied, they are all at root the exact same. Because at root of all these voices is one terrible, wicked sin of pride and arrogance. And it's causing divisions in the church in Corinth, and it causes divisions in the church now. The sin does not lie with the leader. Paul and Peter are not to blame. Apollos will be commended in this very letter as a co-laborer with Paul in Christ. And it's certainly not Jesus' fault. It's our fault. It's us importing into the church our proud, ladder-climbing hearts. It's pride in the service of upward mobility. Now, I don't tell this story very often because, frankly, it's very, very embarrassing but my journey to pastoral ministry did not begin on noble footings. I remember I was a kid and I was sitting in church because my mom dragged me to church. And why am I here? Maybe some of you right now are been dragged to church. And I remember looking at the pastor on the stage and he was using his knowledge and his rhetoric and his wisdom to captivate an audience. And I'm not a Christian and I'm like, oh, I want to do that. I don't believe anything he's saying, but look at the status he has in this community. He's getting ahead. He's moving forward. See, my life, not unlike some of you, 
was dedicated to climbing whatever ladder was in front of me. So social ladder, check. School ladder, sort of check. Now I'm a Christian, Christian ladder, right? And I looked, behold, at the top of the Christian ladder was the pastor, the priest, the person who could captivate the audience. Started climbing. This temptation is not unique to people in full-time paid ministry. The desire for upward mobility is very real for all of us. In your post-gathering conversations, at lunch or, or in your home or around the hall, are you itching uh, to name drop a theologian or a book you're reading just so they'll know you're, you're pretty smart, you're pretty sophisticated or serious or spiritual or smug? Or during your community group, are you eager to broadcast the good deeds you did that week? Because frankly, you guys should, again, get to my level. Or how about this? This is a manifestation of pride as well that we don't think about quite often. Do you sit quietly on Sunday morning? Leave quickly? Don't say a word in community group because you're worried that a wrong comment or thought could impact how people perceive you? It's also pride. It comes across really humble and teachable and gentle, but it's pride. It's pride. It's all pride. And the fruit of this proud intuition as to what will make us happy, what will move us forward, will always be outward disunity. It will always fracture and destroy a church. Paul tells us, look back at your text with me. Paul tells us there is now quarreling rampant in the church. The church looks like the marketplace. The church looks like the political arena. The church looks like the athletic games. The church has become indistinguishable from the city. From the city. There is quarreling in the church. And into this mess, Paul makes a plea and an argument. So first, the plea. Again, in verse 10, we read, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you. Listen, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So how do we combat this disunity that comes from pride, this factionalism that comes from our arrogance, from us importing into the church the secular notion of upward mobility? Paul says first, look at that, be united in the same mind. Here we must remind ourselves of where we've already been in this letter. If today the, the competitive ladder climbing upward mobility of the Corinthian church is on full display, last week, last week, oh, the grace of God was the star. God's gracious, loving, generous disposition towards us. See, the same mind, which Paul will go on to say later as the mind of Christ in this very letter, the mind of Christ, the same mind that we are to have, the same way of thinking that we are to have, that is to govern the church in Corinth and now goes like this. In Christ, by no effort or merit of my own, I have everything I need. That's the mind. That's the way of thinking. 
See, our imagination when we come into the church is to undergo a transformation. In Colossians 3, Paul talked about this as putting off the old self and putting on the new self. In Ephesians 4, Paul will remind the church in Ephesus, as if this is a problem everywhere, including today, that that is not how you learn Christ. This is how you learn Christ. This, this endless competitiveness is completely now out of place in the church. There has to be a transformation of our imaginations. Let me illustrate by, by telling this silly story. When I was a teenager, I went to Mexico City. And so I thought to myself, oh, I'll buy a bunch of shorts because I'm going to Mexico City. I'm going there to teach English. We meet with the missionaries ahead of time. They say, whatever you do, don't buy shorts. Why? It's hot. I'm, I'm going to Mexico City. Like, if you do, you'll be outed immediately as, as a tourist, as a foreigner, because only tourists wear shorts in Mexico City. You, you wear If you're going to Mexico City, you know, in the near future, you're welcome. That's a little tip for you, right? But, but we do that all the time. We act like where we have been in this new place where we are now. See, when you become a Christian, you enter a new realm, a new kingdom, a new city with a new set of behaviors, a new way of living, a new way of being. And when we act according to the old way of being, it's uncomfortably out of place, right? Like me and my pasty legs and shorts in Mexico, right? It's out of place. Paul says, remember this new way of being, how you are to think, not like that, but like this. Paul says not only thinking, but he says judging should be done by grace as well. So think about this. Think about how liberating these words would be to the Corinthians hearing them. If you want to close your eyes and, and picture Paul in a dimly lit house church with maybe 30 or 40 people gathered around, he's preaching these words. Think about their reactions. Think about them hearing this. Corinthians? you no longer need to validate your life on the basis of someone else. Corinthians, you no longer need to validate your existence through this incredibly fickle and temperamental system of patronage that could be taken away at any time. Oh, people are starting to clap. They're yelling. They're way more charismatic than we are on a Sunday morning, right? They're hearing this. It's liberating to them. And think about how incredibly liberating that word is for us, for this church, for me and you today. Paul pleads with the Corinthians, be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. And in this thinking and in this judging, we find freedom. You no longer have to live like this. You no longer have to live afraid of what other people think about you. You no longer have to live on the whims or desires of somebody else. You can now live in this new way of being, Paul's saying. It's incredibly liberating. Incredibly liberating. Paul pleads with the Corinthians, be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. But he grounds this plea in a foundational argument. Look at verse 13. He grounds the plea in theology. He says this. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, except Crispus and Gaius, 
so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And he says, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. And I love that addition because it reminds us that Paul is a human being. To Paul's three rhetorical questions, the answer, of course, three times is no. Is Christ divided? No. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Were you baptized in Paul's name? No. Paul will expand on these no's in chapter 12 when he gives us this little nugget of theology. He says in verses 12 to 13, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are, listen again, one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into again, one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Church, imagine what it would look like if we actually believe this. If we actually believe this. If we, in view of the grace we received, checked our egos at the door. If we, in view of the grace we've received, just stop thinking about ourselves so much. And I stop thinking about myself so much. And instead, begin using whatever grace gifts God has given us to, to serve one another. See, if I can add to this, the fruit of pride is, is not only outward disunity, it's also cancerous apathy. It's thinking like, why use my gifts to serve and bless others when it doesn't advance me? It doesn't do anything for me. We looked at this two weeks ago, and if you're new this morning, this is helpful for you. Uh, the church is not a, a one-stop shop for religious goods and services. It's a place of giving, as we'll see in a bit, a place of downward cruciformity, of pouring ourselves out and being filled in return by his spirit amongst God's people. See, pride doesn't only lead to outward disunity, it also leads to cancerous apathy. And it kills a church. Makes us seem hypocritical. Now, what is the remedy for all this? This outward disunity and cancerous apathy. Let's look there now. We've seen upward mobility, outward disunity, and now downward cruciformity. So Paul makes the passing reference to being glad he didn't baptize more people than remembers. Oh, yeah, I baptized that guy. He does note, though, that there is something he is glad about. He's glad that he didn't baptize those people, but he's also glad, perhaps more foundationally for this. Let's read verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. If the Christian imagination is not to be formed by our old love of upward mobility, what is to shape it? How are we to live? It's not enough to say, not this. We also have to say, but this. It's not enough to say, just not this. We have to say also, but this. And before we get to verse 17, Paul is actually in our letter already alluded to this other way. He began by saying, do you remember? I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is interesting to note that in the very passage where Paul chastises smug, divisive people, 
who want to take the name of Christ and use it for their social climbing, for their upward mobility, that he also appeals to the Corinthians in Christ's name. What's the difference? Well, the difference being, whereas the Corinthians wanted to use Christ for their upward mobility, use him to further their social and political causes, Paul knew service to Christ would mean his downward cruciformity. See, listen, there is a man who we should follow. There is a man who every day we should go and line up at his door in order to receive everything we need. There is a man who gives us every gift, who sustains us, who keeps us, but it's the God-man Jesus. We could say he is our divine patron. The God-man, who though he had everything, humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. Though he is almighty and all-powerful, won his children to himself through the horror of crucifixion. Mocked, humiliated, spat on, rejected, homeless and forsaken. In some ways, it is the least intuitive thing in the world to follow Jesus. Isn't that true? As Isaiah would say, there's nothing outwardly pleasing about Jesus. It's not beautiful. Didn't lead an army. And yet, see, we give ourselves to these high-profile visionary leaders, right? Proven billionaires, rhetorical geniuses. Because in doing so, we hope to become like them. Successful by association. Right? And into that lie comes the true prophet, Jesus. And Jesus speaks the truth when he says, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He says, there is no happiness or flourishing in upward mobility. And I want you to hear that, Christ City. There is no happiness at the top of that ladder. Only by following me in downward cruciformity. Only by having your life shaped and directed and formed by my cross. So I want to ask again, what if your intuitions about the way to the good life are wrong? What if they're wrong? What if the good life comes not by advancing yourself, but by first trusting in Jesus. That the crucified and resurrected Lord died and rose that you might live. And what if it comes by following in his footsteps, by taking your idols of reputation and self-advancement and public perception and upward mobility and setting them on fire, burning them down, Pursuing wholeheartedly, not half-heartedly, the cross-shaped life Jesus has for you. What if happiness is looking more like Christ? Does this sound very foolish to you? As if on cue, Paul tells us, well... 
God has ordained that this foolish message is the good news that changes people. This silly message of a crucified Messiah is the message that has power to transform. See, the Corinthians, and we'll see this next week in detail, they would have Paul spice up his messages a little bit, you know? Maybe some object lessons, some virtual reality headsets, better lighting at least, right? Just spice it up a bit, Paul, you know? Make it a bit more interesting, right? Here was a city that had become accustomed to trained rhetoricians with words of eloquent wisdom. Here was a city that had grown accustomed to a certain standard, a certain level. And here comes Paul with a message of Christ crucified. Our preaching, whether on Sunday morning in the pulpit or Monday afternoon by by the water cooler or, or Friday morning at the side of that bunk bed, our preaching is one of the most profound ways that we follow Christ in downward cruciformity. It is a simple message of Christ crucified that saves us from our sins. And it is a simple message of Christ crucified that God loves to powerfully transform us with. Some of us this morning have become embarrassed of the simple message. We've become embarrassed of this simple message. We think we need a PhD in philosophy or at least four good years in seminary before we can teach the gospel or preach the gospel. We'll see next week, there's nothing wrong with winsomely communicating the gospel. But I'll take five enthusiastic evangelists who preach Christ crucified over 500 PhDs any day of the week. This is the message God has ordained to use to change people, to transform people. And it's one of the ways we follow him in downward cruciformity. It's one of the ways that he gets glory and we don't. So one very simple way, if you're looking for the little nugget to take away with you this week, one very simple way you can follow Christ in downward cruciformity this week is by preaching the gospel of Christ crucified to someone. That Jesus died for your sins. That he rose again for your life. And he's coming back again to make all things new. That is the message God has chosen to change, really, the world. It might sound foolish. It will most assuredly sound old-fashioned. But in God's infinite wisdom, it is this message he's used He's chosen to save people. And it's how he saved you. Let's pray. So Father, we come this morning uh, unsettled by your word, perhaps with areas of our life revealed in our sin by your word. We thank you that the final word uh, in your son Jesus is never condemnation, but always invitation. And so we bring to you these areas of our life and we lay them before you. We ask you to forgive us and we rest assured in the work of your son Jesus Christ that you indeed do. It's in his name we pray. Amen.